You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 13th day of August, 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone to the program and, as always, invite you all to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, videos, and other media that I've created over the past five years, and a documentation list for today's episode with links to all of the documents, videos, articles, and other uh, materials that I cite in this podcast episode. So once again, CorbettReport.com, a vast treasure trove of information that's been amassed over the past five years. I hope you are making use of it as the resource that it is. Just a couple of housekeeping notes today. First of all, I would like to draw everyone's attention to an app that might come in handy if they're looking to access the Corbett Report media via their mobile device. There is an app called the Truth Seeker app. It's available from BAPS.com. I'll put the link in the show notes for today's episode so you can go there directly and download this app. It gives you access to the Corbett Report RSS feeds, so it will uh, help you to stream all of the Corbett Report uh, media videos, uh, audio, whatever else uh, comes out, as well as uh, very many other uh, truth-related news and information services. So I hope that you will check that out if you haven't yet done so. If you do uh, want to find an app for your iPhone or your Android or whatever it is you might use to get information on the go, this will help you to do that. So thank you to the Truth Seeker app for including the Corbett Report in their feeds. Also, I would like to uh, pick up from what I was talking about last week regarding people putting these uh, videos up on YouTube. I would like to draw people's attention to a YouTube channel called Take a Second Look News, which is uh, doing an admirable job of posting every single Corbett Report radio show and Corbett Report episode to its channel so far, and uh, I don't know who's behind this channel, but to whoever it is, thank you for doing that. Obviously, YouTube is where the almost... uh, Well, pretty much, uh, well, the vast majority of the internet's video streaming traffic is. So it's great to have these full episodes up there, and I hope people will support that channel, because as you know, YouTube won't allow me to upload videos longer than 15 minutes. So it's great to have these all in one place like that. So thank you to whoever is doing that, and I hope people out there will show some support and consider subscribing to that channel to, uh, to show that support and to help spread these videos around. But on that note, we have a ton of information as always, so let's get straight to it. Welcome to episode 239 of the Corbett Report podcast. Logic is not enough. There has been a growing trend amongst the alternative media hosts out there that I'm sure many of you have picked up on uh, in recent years that puts puts an increased emphasis on critical thinking and logical reasoning, logical argumentation in constructing our arguments for whatever proposition we're arguing for, and that seeks to get us to identify forms of logical fallacies when we see them and to uh, try to remove them from our own arguments and point them out when we see them in other people's arguments. And once again, I'm sure this is a phenomenon that a lot of you have picked up on, you've heard it before on this program, on related programs. It's getting more and more out there, the idea of logical argumentation, logical reasoning, and uh, and identifying fallacious arguments. 
So I think that this is in and of itself a good thing. Obviously, it serves us well to be able to understand how to construct a logical argument and how to point out the flaws in other people's arguments, the, f the flaws in their reasoning. That, that's something that's inherently good, and it's good that there's more and more emphasis being placed on this because obviously it does serve us well to be able to put together the soundest argument that we can when we are arguing for or against any given proposition. However, having said that, and once again, this is a good thing overall, and first of all, let me say that I'm not uh, addressing today's episode towards any host in particular or anything that I've heard said by anyone in particular. It is not meant in that way at all. But I want to put out there a warning against taking this type of, this type of uh, em emphasis on logical argumentation to its extreme conclusion that through logical argumentation itself, we can arrive at truth certainty. I think that this is not only wrong and demonstrably wrong, but it's also a dangerous idea because it leads us into the ideology of the people who we are working against, the control freaks who are trying to control you and me, who want to control our behaviors and to manage us like cattle. And uh, unfortunately, this very much plays into their ideology and their mindset that they are striving towards. And we have to understand that and be very careful not to go down that road. So this is going to be a very philosophy-heavy podcast. For, so for those of you out there who, like myself, are philosophically inclined, get your thinking cap on and get ready to start thinking along, uh, along the lines I suggest and to be, uh, to be ready to counter my arguments, etc., etc., as you will and as you should with every single host and everything you hear. For those who would rather bash their heads into the wall than listen to a philosophical argument, let me first off say that I think all of us, every single one of us, has a philosophy that guides us and guides our actions, and we have to be able to understand, identify, and articulate that philosophy in order to be able to interrogate it, because we can't interrogate it. If we can't think about the way we're thinking, then we are going to be stuck in a loop, and we're going to be able to be led along into the next stage of thinking by the people who are puppeteering people's actions and have been for longer than you and I have been alive. So it is extremely important to be able to understand and to interrogate some of our philosophical ideas that we all have, even if we don't know that we have them. So I think philosophy is important in that sense. But if you really, really don't want to listen to philosophical argumentation, I hope you will at the very least stick on, hang on till the end of today's episode when we get into some of the ramifications of this and why it is so important not to put all of our eggs into the logical analysis basket. Now, let's step back for a moment and take a look at some of the underlying ideas of this, well, let's call it the extremist argument, that logical argumentation itself is, is the be-all, the, the end-all, the prize that we're seeking that will arrive at total certainty about the world, that we can then communicate to others perfectly through logical argumentation, and they'll take it on board, and, and everything will arrive at this glowing orb of truth certainty that, uh, that will undoubtedly exist once we unlock the right logical arguments. There's a lot that's underlying that type of idea, which again, I'm not saying anyone is propounding per se, but it's the type of road that we might go down if we continue uh, putting more and more and more emphasis on logical argumentation rather than on some of the other parts that make up the important, uh, the important whole of constructing, of, of becoming to uh, true conclusions. 
So the underlying assumptions are shared. At, they, they come out of this philosophical tradition of empiricism and positivism and logical positivism and logical atomism and all of these other philosophical trends from various philosophical thinkers. And we won't get into that labeling and, and categorization and history of philosophy, etc., etc., because there's always disputes between people about categorizing and labeling, etc., etc. We don't need to do that. Let's just identify some of the trends that have led us to the spot where we're at and that uh, I think really do go to refute this idea that we will arrive at truth through logical argumentation alone. Well, this idea comes from Enlightenment thinkers, broadly speaking, who were arguing basically that our experience provides us with knowledge about the world, and thus we have to engage in the world, we have to experience and experiment with the world in order to find out about that world, in order to be able to predict more about the future and to understand the world that we're living in. Well, so far so good. That's kind of the baseline understanding that most of us out there have if we've been subjected, for example, to any science whatsoever, obviously we have to experiment with the world and we have to, we have to conduct experiments and, and derive what we can from them about the way the world works and then base our theories about how, what's underlying that based on those experiments, etc., etc. That seems like a pretty basic understanding to us here today, but a few hundred years ago that was truly revolutionary. And there were people who were coming along, like Galileo and then Newton and others like them, who were really saying for the first time in, in certain key respects, well, no, we, we can't say we don't know about how this or that is going to happen until we do it. And we have to experiment with it and record those results and use that as the basis for our understanding. And that was a really revolutionary idea. There were people who had been following in the wake of the Greek philosophers for literally thousands, a thousand and 1500 years, basically saying that everything was in this realm of the platonic ideals, or that we can all just understand things through this realm of ideas. We don't actually need to dirty our hands, so to speak, by actually rolling up our sleeves and doing experiments. Um, so, so there was that, that, that strain, that, that idea that had existed for a long time, but there were people coming along, breaking that down, and coming to some quite incredible, remarkable results based on that. Uh, Newton deriving the laws of gravitation are just almost unimaginable in terms of how much they upset the worldview of, of, of pretty much everyone on the planet at that time, and how incredible, really, the results of, of those experiments and those calculations were to be able to derive the laws of gravitation so that we no longer have to believe that the stars are being pushed around by angels in the spheres of the, of the heavens. We can actually see that there are mathematical equations which underlie everything that can explain the movements, etc., etc. That is an incredible thing for, uh, for human reason to come to. But uh, it, it, it led to this idea, the creation of this idea of the clockwork universe, that everything in the universe can be derived from certain universal laws, and if we could just know the initial conditions of the universe and all of the universal laws that apply, then we can derive literally everything about the universe. We can know everything about every point in space and time about the universe simply from having those, those initial conditions and those equations about the universal laws. And 
it may uh, it may be a pipe dream it may be uh, a, a set of equations that we'll never be able to ultimately get to or that even if we did maybe no human would ever be able to actually compute all of the things involved but it would still be that ideal that we could strive towards that if we could just get the right uh, equations and if we could just get the right measurements of the, the first few seconds of creation the big bang or whatever it was then we can derive everything that came afterwards and uh, that is kind of the holy grail of the, the scientific inquiry in a lot of ways, or it was for quite a long time after the, the wake of that initial scientific revolution. And that is kind of the guiding principle that, that underlies a lot of what came afterwards in terms of striving after that type of certainty that was implied in that, that promise, the idea of the clockwork universe. Now, I think some people understand that the clockwork universe idea itself is unsettling in a lot of ways, because if it were true, for example, that we could know everything about the universe from just those equations and those initial calculations, those measurements of the initial conditions of the universe, then everything that follows is deterministic. Every single point in space and time could be determined through these equations, and that would mean that me sitting here right now talking to you wherever you are right now we have no other choice. I have no choice but to be sitting here saying this. You have no choice but to be sitting there listening to me. Ha ha ha. Because everything is determined from those initial conditions and the universal laws. So that's quite upsetting for people who like to believe in such things as free will, for example. But even disregarding the sort of ickiness factor of that clockwork universe and what it implies, there are some real fundamental problems that we have arrived at over the last, at the very least, century of scientific and philosophical inquiry that shows that that ideal, that idea, whatever people want to think of it, is wrong. It is epistemologically wrong. It's ontologically wrong. It does not describe the universe the way it exists. And it uh, leads to some false ideas about what is possible in terms of arriving at certainty through mere logical calculation, analysis, and, uh, and equations, etc., etc. So let's, let's start examining this and say, and, and break that down, because I've just made a pretty huge statement that that is wrong. And uh, so let's, let's examine why I would say that. So for example, why is this ontologically wrong? Ontology being the study of what is in the universe, what, what is out there, what, uh, what exists. And, uh, and, and to say that there is something wrong with the idea of a clockwork universe ontologically is to say that the universe does not exist in the way that it can be calculable and knowable and provable in that manner. That There is no way that we can ever come to that complete understanding of every point in space and time through mere equations and measurements. And that's a pretty big thing to say. And let me put in the caveat, I don't think it's 100% certainly wrong. Uh, there's no telling what can happen in the future for people to somehow synthesize this at a higher level of, of understanding than we have at this current day and age. But given our best interpretation of what we understand right now, it is wrong, which is the best you can ever say in terms of, uh, in terms of inductive techniques, in terms of the scientific reasoning. So let's take a look at that, because why is that wrong? Well, it has to do with the very nature, the very fabric, the very, the very being of space-time itself, of what space and time is, in order to, uh, to really refute the idea that everything is calculable to that degree. And this, uh, there's a lot of different things that we could bring in here, but let's just bring in one that I hope a lot of people will be familiar with, at least by name, if not by concept. And it was a concept, it was a mathematical idea, actually, that was developed by someone named Werner Heisenberg, working in the early 20th century, 
who came up with a pretty startling conclusion that, uh, based on subatomic uh, physics, uh, that we can know, basically we can know the, the momentum or we can know the position of any particular subatomic particle to any degree of certainty that we want, but we cannot know them both to uh, ultimate certainty. So the more you know about a, a subatomic particle's momentum, the less you know about its uh, position and vice versa. That's a pretty startling thing to say. And the important thing to understand about that is that it's not just a contingent thing. It is actually built into the nature of matter itself. So this is, again, a pretty big, huge concept and probably deserves a million hours of explication, but let's take the three-minute short route based on a pithy YouTube video. Take the uncertainty principle. It says that the better we know where a particle is, the less we know about how fast it's going. There's a limit to how much we can know. But this isn't just quantum weirdness, it happens all the time with normal everyday waves. Remember that the frequency of a wave is how close the wave crests are to each other. A low-frequency wave doesn't have nearly as much oomph as a high-frequency one. And the position of a wave is, well, where the wave is, mostly. So where exactly is a wave? It's spread out everywhere, right? Okay, but for a wave pulse, it's pretty easy to see where the wave is. So now that we know where the pulse is, what's its frequency? Well, a localized pulse doesn't really wave, so we can't measure the frequency of its crests. And that's the uncertainty principle in a nutshell. You can either know where a wave is, or where it's going, but not both at the same time. Well, once again, that was kind of the crash course introduction to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And uh, for those who are mathematically uh, gifted out there, you might want to actually try to tackle some of the mathematics involved there. For those who are, uh, are, are not so mathematically gifted, uh, there are a lot of different explanations out there on the web that I suggest you check into for some of the, the basic what is going on there and why this is important. But I think that the underlying point of this is pretty startling, that it is actually a property of matter itself, that at that subatomic level, we cannot know, it is unknowable, the precise position and momentum of any particular subatomic particle like that. That's an extremely important thing to understand about the nature of matter itself. And it's important to understand that that is to do with the nature of matter. That video addressed it to at least a certain extent, the idea of the observer effect, and that Heisenberg himself sort of framed this uncertainty principle as saying, well, it's because when you measure something, it changes the, the thing in question. So you can't, when, when, no matter how you measure it, you'll always change it a little bit. So you can't precisely know its momentum or position. But in fact, that's not the underlying principle. There was a, a different formulation by a different pair of scientists who said that, no, it's not about the, the measurement. It's about the, the nature of reality itself, that it actually cannot be understood. It cannot be known, even theoretically, even if we were some godlike entity that could see down to, the, to that level without affecting, without in some way interfering with the, the subatomic particle, it is actually built into the wave-particle duality nature of the thing itself. So again, an extremely difficult concept for people who are more interested in that and how that was very recently proven um, scientifically. Uh, I will suggest you, you take a look at a very interesting Scientific American article, One Thing is Certain, Heisenberg's Uncertainty principle is not dead, uh, talking about a very recent experiment that, that basically proved that, uh, that that's the case, that matter at a certain fundamental level is not completely knowable in terms of both its momentum and position. Again, what is the ultimate ramification of this? That kind of, in a way, that destroys the clockwork universe uh, to a certain extent at any rate, and perhaps 
you can argue, well, we can have probabilistic uh, outcomes instead of completely deterministic outcomes. So there's still a kind of clockwork universe, but we can't know exactly the position of every part of the gear of every of the clock, etc., etc. And it can get into that type of argument. But I think the underlying ideal of the clockwork universe in its most basic formulation that we can know everything about the universe down to the slightest nth degree is shown to be incorrect, I think, when we start taking into account some of those quantum mechanical effects and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, etc., etc. So again, pretty important stuff. And uh, this goes to destroy not only the idea that the universe is completely knowable, but that it's completely calculable, which I think starts to gnaw away at the idea that uh, that through logical argumentation alone, through simple logical notation, we'll be able to really extract the, uh, the, the f- true meaning of the universe and arrive at certainty in some way. But of course, this is all somewhat abstract, so let's start moving towards the cr- concrete a little bit closer, uh, away from uh, quantum mechanics at any rate. And let's start uh, tackling some of the other ideas that have been uh, really challenged and really proven to have been false in the last uh, century or so. So, we can see through the, the development of philosophy, again, this long history of philosophy developing into something called logical positivism and, and analytic philosophy, which is this idea that we can take everything and everything of real meaning and substance that exists and we can pack it into these logical statements and we can use logical notation to represent various things and we can really arrive at this logical analytical understanding of, of what's happening when we make certain statements. And it's a very interesting, very fruitful, very, very important philosophical branch. But it did run into something of a brick wall that is so amazing. It's still, some of the implications of this are still not really even calculable, not even really, we can't even get our heads around it. It's really remarkable, remarkable finding that not a lot of people really think about or talk about. So let's uh, let's start talking about it. So l- uh, let's look at the logical uh, analytic philosophy represented by people like Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead, who um, I, I hope people out there know the name Bertrand Russell by now. I've certainly mentioned him several times in the podcast and not in a positive light. We'll come back to that later on in this episode. But he was one of these people working in that tradition, broadly speaking, again, let's not get into the labels and categorization because there will always be problems with that. But he's someone who, who was really striving for that idea that we could arrive at some sort of logical basis for mathematics, that purest of sciences that has nothing to do with, it's just all about the, the reason and really getting at the fundamental way, the nature of reality itself through pure mathematics. Well, if we could bolster up ar- arithmetic itself with logical analysis, if we could just arrive at total logical certainty about the underpinnings of arithmetic and mathematics, then we can move on from there to total certainty in in terms of physics and and later on biology, etc., etc. It could be this kind of knock-on effect through the sciences. It's that idea, that underlying ideal that everything can be reducible to this total certainty that comes through the logical analysis. So in that regard and striving towards that end, Russell and Whitehead wrote this tome called Principia Mathematica, which um, if you're inclined, if you're mathematically gifted, by all means, go out there and uh, try to take a look at it yourself. It's uh, clearly above my pay grade, but it is uh, a remarkable achievement. And if, if not only because after literally hundreds of pages of densely packed logical notation, it finally arrives at 
the total certainty that it is demonstrated through this logical analysis that 1 plus 1 equals 2. It's quite a momentous thing to see when, when this logical analysis and logical notation has finally arrived at the total certainty that 1 plus 1 equals 2, which for a lot of people out there will seem like, well, what is the point of that endeavor? But, uh, but for the people who are striving after that certainty, the total certainty that, uh, that really is that idea, that ideal that a lot of people have been striving towards through the clockwork universe and, and other ideals, it's, it's such a thing to be able to grasp that. And it was something that Russell and Whitehead were willing to devote years of their lives and hundreds of pages of this densely packed logical notation to arrive at that and and oh so then things start to fall out from there and you can deduce multiplication etc etc and oh it's perfect we can actually come up to this total logical completely cohesive analysis that explains and proves with total certainty the mathematical concepts that we've just sort of taken for granted, that we just sort of understand 1 plus 1 equals 2. Well, we can show how that is certainly true. Again, a momentous thing for the people who in that positivist tradition want to to really come to that understanding, that certainty through logical analysis. But there was a bit of a monkey wrench thrown in the works by a little uh, mathematician, philosopher, uh, called Kurt Gödel, who came up with something, well, that really, really, completely unhinged that ideal uh, that uh, we would ever be able to underpin mathematics with total certainty. This is one of the cafes where the Vienna Circle used to meet regularly. Late summer of 1930, Gödel came to the cafe with two eminent colleagues. Towards the end of their conversation, he just mentioned an idea he'd been working on, which he called the incompleteness theorem. And what he told them was that he had just proved that all systems of mathematical logic were limited, that there would always be some things which, while true, would never be able to be proved to be true. What Gödel showed in his incompleteness theorem is that uh, no matter how large you make your basis of reasoning, your axioms, your set of axioms, in arithmetic there would always be statements that are true but cannot be proved. No matter how much data you have to build on, you will never prove all true statements. What this meant was that the great Renaissance dream that one day maths and logic would be able to prove all things and give us a godlike knowledge, that dream was over. But this idea was so far away from what anyone else was working on, what anyone else even suspected, that neither of his colleagues understood what he had just told them. It was as if there was an explosion, but the blast wave hadn't hit them yet. Well, what can be said? To a certain extent, the people out there that get it, get it, and the people out there that don't, maybe you still don't. But the point, I think, is that something really incredibly monumental happened when Gödel came along with his incompleteness theorem and completely destroyed the idea that we would ever be able to, uh, to completely ground any logical system 
even uh, any logical system worth speaking about, anyone of, of, of necessary sophistication to say anything meaningful and useful, to completely ground that uncertainty is a pipe dream. There will always be propositions within that logical system that cannot be proven from within the system. And that is a, uh, a pretty huge discovery to come to, come to. And, uh, and as it has been said, that type of discovery really, I mean, puts Gödel among the great thinkers of all of human history, but you'll hear about Newton or Einstein or some of these other thinkers, but you, chances are you don't hear about Gödel very often. And that's because uh, he really tore the heart out of a lot of people who really did believe in that ideal that we could somehow arrive at this total underpinning of logical certainty. Well, unfortunately, it just isn't there. And um, it gets even worse, because even if we disregard all of that about uncertainty principle and incompleteness theorem and all of these other things that poke holes in the ideal of the clockwork universe, even if we disregard that and still say somehow, who knows, maybe through some discoveries and and, and, and flights of fancy and philosophy and some mathematics and things that we haven't even dreamt of as, as a species yet, philosophers of a future age will bring it all back and we'll, we'll have that ideal again and the clockwork universe will be there and we'll be have that thing where we can prove everything through the just logical reasoning alone. Even if we can do that, the question is, can we pass that along to other people? Are people themselves fundamentally rational, fundamentally capable of logical reasoning without any impartiality, of simply following a logical argument and arriving inevitably at its conclusion without questioning that conclusion? Uh, is it possible to simply convey logical arguments in a totally straightforward way that will be 100% received by the listener in the way that it's intended? Once again, unfortunately, the answer really appears to be no. People are not fundamentally rational beings. Uh, back in the days of the Enlightenment, in the 18th century, when the country was founded, there was a view of the mind that took hold, and it's very popular even today. Uh, it's a view that goes like this, and many people hold it. It says, thought is unconscious, it's conscious, it's all there, you know what you think. Thought is conscious, it's reason is dispassionate, unemotional, it's a lot, reason is logical, that reason can just fit the world as it is, that is, it's literal, that it's uh, universal, we all reason the same way, that uh, reason is disembodied, it's abstract, and that it's interest-based, it's there to serve your self-interests. Every part of it's false. That what we've learned in cognitive science and in neuroscience over the past 30 years is every single piece is false. Mm -hmm. So um, take the idea that reason is conscious. It's 98% unconscious. It's what your brain is doing when you're filled with consciousness. But most of it isn't, is, you know, is not accessible to conscious thought. Uh, take the idea that it's dispassionate, that uh, reason, in, that reason is interfered with by emotion. It's the reverse. You can't be rational without being emotional, and this was shown by um, Antonio Damasio in a book called Descartes' Error. Uh, Tony Damasio, uh, you know, works on people who have uh, brain damage, strokes, you know, problems of that sort, and it turns out one form of brain damage is when you can't feel emotions when the part of the brain that allows you to feel emotions is damaged. When that happens, you don't know what to want. 
if you don't know what to want, because you don't know if you're going to be happy, unhappy, because there isn't any happy or unhappy. You don't know if other people are going to ha be happy with you or angry at you. So you have no idea how to function at all. You can't be rational without being emotional. Mm -hmm. Impossible. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out we don't just uh, think in terms of logic. We think in terms of metaphors. Uh, Mark Johnson and I have studied metaphorical thought at, at some length. We think in terms of conceptual frames. Uh, many cognitive scientists, uh, especially Charles Fillmore, has, has studied these things. Uh, those are normal modes of thought. They don't just fit the world as it is. Uh, it's not just literal out there. And, um, and it, these things work with a logic of their own. They don't uh, work by formal logic or probabilistic logic or things of that sort. In addition, um, it turns out thought is not just abstract. It isn't free-floating. It's actually based on the way our bodies work. Uh, our ideas are based on that. And we learned this from neuroscience in a very deep way. Uh, back in the 1990s, there was a remarkable discovery, which was that if um, you are imagining something, take a, a, a drawing, and you memorize the drawing and you imagine it, the same part of the brain becomes active as if you see it. And if you remember it, the same part is active. And if you dream that you're seeing, the same part is active as when you're actually seeing. The same with moving. Now, what's interesting about that is that Suppose I take a sentence like, uh, and by the way, the same is true if I give you a sentence, uh, you know, about seeing something, mm -hmm. then the same part of the brain will be active as well, uh, will, will, uh, because you'll see the scene. If I give you a sentence like, he took a drink of water, if you don't know what it is to take a drink of water, if you can't even imagine it, you don't understand the sentence. Mm -hmm. What that suggests is that meaning is the capacity for imagination. Meaning is the capacity for activating those parts of the brain that understand all these things through actually seeing or acting, through actually um, uh, imagining, dreaming, remembering, and so on. They're all part of the same system. They're embodied. Any idea you have is physically there in your brain. And then there's the question of, is reason there for self-interest? What was discovered in 1996 in Parma, Italy, was something remarkable that we have uh, a part of our brain called mirror neurons uh, located uh, in the prefrontal cortex and then in, they've discovered them in other places so that if they're fi they fire when we coordinate actions, when I say pick up a glass of water, um, when I do coordinated actions, they'll fire or when I see someone else do the same action. Mm. Now, what that means is that you are connected to other people. Mm. But those neurons are connected to emotional regions. So when you, when you feel emotions, your body feels a certain way. If you're happy, you smile. If you're sad, you droop and so on. That means you can see someone else's body and know what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. Empathy is physical. We have inherited the capacity for empathy. It's there in our brains. So actually, reason is very different. It's mostly unconscious. It's emotional. It has emotional ties, and um, people like Damasio have been tracing out pathways linking emotional regions to other, quote, more rational regions of the brain, but they're connected. Uh, the um, uh, reason is metaphorical. It's not literal. It doesn't just fit the world. Uh, it's uh, not abstract. It's embodied, 
and it's not based on self-interest. It has everything to do with connecting with other people, mm -hmm. with empathy. Now, this has often been put forward in a lamentable fashion. Oh, it's too bad that people aren't rational, and rational enough to be those perfect logical automatons like Mr. Spock that can just calculate everything logically. And because of that, they can be led along by the nose by people like Edward Bernays, who know how to manipulate people's subconscious desires and all of the things that are going on under the surface that people may not have really been able to articulate a couple of hundred years ago. But in the last hundred years or so, we've been able to start to flesh this out and understand there is much, much, much more going on than what we have over our conscious uh, facade, our, our rationality that, that we like to think guides us in all our decisions. But really, underneath, we are a raging tumult of sub conscious drives and passions and and irrational thoughts etc etc so it's uh, it's sometimes put lamentably but sometimes i think it's important to also revel in that fact that we are not those logical automatons and that emotion and other such uh, irrational things are very much a incredibly important part of our reason of our understanding of our of who we are of our identity and i think we should delight in that to a certain extent as well i think that's important to to not only understand but to 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 find the, the positive side of that as well that we are not just those robots and uh, and that, i think that can be a good thing but of course we also have to be wary of the type of manipulation that we that we can be put under uh, by people like Bernays and others who know how to play on our subconscious drives so let's uh, let's move along to what i think might be the most damning and perhaps even the simplest argument of all maybe i should have just started and ended with this but at any rate logic is not enough. Logical argumentation will not in and of itself arrive at certainty. How can I say this? Well, I can demonstrate it to you with a few basic examples that show that logic and the truth of one's conclusions are not inextricably interrelated. How can I say this? Well, for example, you can have a completely logically valid argument that is completely, totally true, that adheres to all the laws of logic, that arrives at a false conclusion. So, for example, we have, uh, let's take the example, all dogs are brown, Snoopy is a dog, therefore Snoopy is brown. People might recognize this is the classical Greek syllogism, the one of the most revered, simplest forms of logical reasoning. If A, then B, A, therefore B. In this case, Snoopy, uh, if all, uh, all dogs are brown, Snoopy is a dog, therefore Snoopy is brown. It's not true. Snoopy is not brown. Snoopy is black and white. What has gone wrong? Oh, it turns out one of the premises, uh, all dogs are brown. That's not true. Some dogs are black. Some dogs are white. Some dogs are black and white. Uh, some dogs are purple if we spray paint them to be such. So it does not actually hold that all dogs are, are brown. Therefore, we can arrive at that false conclusion. Snoopy is brown. Even though the logical argument, the structure of the argument itself is unimpeachable. There is no fallacy involved in that argument. It's just that the premise was actually wrong. We can also have other uh, permutations of this. We can have an argument that is valid, that reaches a true conclusion, but has a false premise. So, for example, we can say that all dogs are black and white, and Snoopy is a dog, therefore Snoopy is black and white. Well, again, it's the syllogism, if A then B, A therefore B, that's all sound, it's a logically valid argument. The conclusion is true, Snoopy is black and white. But the premise itself was again wrong. Not all dogs are black and white. So it, we have a completely valid argument. We have a true conclusion. But still, one of the premises was completely false. 
Uh, we can also have a completely different situation. We can have a completely fallacious argument that ends up with a true conclusion. So you could say that, for example, all dogs have four legs, and Snoopy has four legs, therefore Snoopy is a dog. Well, let's, for the moment, leave out the idea of those poor three-legged amputee dogs. Let's not even bring that in. Let's just say that it's true, the, the premise is true, that all dogs have four legs. But in this case, this is a logically fallacious argument. All dogs have four legs, Snoopy has four legs, therefore Snoopy is a dog. This is that type of fallacy called affirming the consequent. That means it, it looks like the syllogism, but it's slightly different. It's not if A then B, A therefore B. It's if A then B, B therefore A, which is not logically valid. It is a flawed argument. But in this case, we arrive at a true conclusion. Snoopy is a dog. And well, does that mean that this was this was logically valid after all? No, it's a logically fallacious argument that employs a fallacy, but we still arrive at a true conclusion. This is uh, this is something that that we can use to understand something called the argument from fallacy, or if you want, the fallacy fallacy, whereby. Just because there is a flaw in an argument, just because an argument is fallacious, does not mean that its conclusion is wrong. In fact, its conclusion can be completely true. It could be true, it could be false, we don't know. But all it's saying is that just because there's a fallacy in an argument doesn't mean that it's false. So to argue from fallacy is to say, well, look, that guy used a fallacy in his argument, therefore it's wrong. Well, the argument may be invalid, but that doesn't mean the conclusion is wrong. So we have to understand that logically logically valid statements and logical reasoning are not inextricably interlinked with true conclusions. That something can be logically valid and arrive at a true conclusion. It can be logically valid and arrive at a false conclusion. It can be fallacious and arrive at a true conclusion. It can be fallacious and arrive at a false conclusion. The important thing is the way that the premises work together with the arguments. And there's a lot to be said about this. For one, I mean, how often does it come up in our daily life that we can form a classical syllogism? All A are B, A, therefore B. Things don't tend to fall into those nice categories that we can easily summarize and encapsulate in a logical statement like that. And I think to a certain degree, expecting that we'll be able to put things of true, real meaning into forms like that uh, is is a bit of a pipe dream. If, uh, if more carbon dioxide than higher temperatures, more carbon dioxide than higher temperatures. I mean, we can use that to, to take a look at some of the, the incredibly complex issues that we talk about here, the, the global warming hoax, etc., etc., but it's extremely difficult to break those down into the classical forms of uh, logical argumentation. But even leaving that aside, I mean, think about the um, think about the scale of of detaching true conclusions from true logically valid arguments. We can have a logically valid argument and arrive at a false conclusion because the premises were false. I mean, the premises, the terms that we were using are really extremely important to this process. In order to have uh, t- total certainty, we'd have to have true premises in a logically valid form to arrive at a, at a certain truth. Well, uh, again, how often does that happen? But, but even so, to get the the premises true is is such an incredibly important point, and uh, it, it serves us well to understand that even if we have uh, a, a completely logically perfectly constructed valid beautiful argument, if we start from false premises, we can arrive at horrific conclusions very easily. The Reith lectures. Bertrand Russell is giving the fifth of six broadcasts on authority and the individual. His fifth lecture is entitled 
control and initiative their respective spheres. Bertrand Russell. A healthy and progressive society requires both central control and individual and group initiative. Without control, there is anarchy, and without initiative, there is stagnation. I want in this lecture to arrive at some general principles as to what matters should be controlled and what should be left to private or semi-private initiative. Some of the qualities that we should wish to find in a community are in their essence static, while others are by their very nature dynamic. Speaking very roughly, we may expect the static qualities to be suitable for governmental control, while the dynamic qualities should be promoted by the initiative of individuals or groups. But if such initiative is to be possible, and if it is to be fruitful rather than destructive, it will need to be fostered by appropriate institutions, and the safeguarding of such institutions will have to be one of the functions of government. It is obvious that in a state of anarchy there could not be universities or scientific research or publication of books or even such simple things as seaside holidays. In our complex world there cannot be fruitful initiative without government but unfortunately there can be government without initiative. The primary aims of government, I suggest, should be three, security, justice, and conservation. These are things of the utmost importance to human happiness, and they are things which only government can bring about. At the same time, no one of them is absolute. Each may, in some circumstances, have to be sacrificed in some degree for the sake of a greater degree of some other good. I will say something about each in turn. Security, in the sense of protection against life and property, uh, protection of life and property, has always been recognized as one of the primary purposes of the state. Many states, however, while safeguarding law-abiding citizens against other citizens, have not thought it necessary to protect them against the state. Wherever there is arrest by administrative order and punishment without due process of law, private people have no security, however firmly the state may be established. And even insistence on due process of law is insufficient, unless the judges are independent of the executive. This order of ideas was to the fore in the 17th and 18th centuries under the slogan, Liberty of the Subject or rights of man. But liberty and the rights that were sought could only be secured by the state, and then only if the state was of the kind that is called liberal. It is only in the West that this liberty and these rights have been secured. To us in the present day, a more interesting kind of security is security against attacks by hostile states. This is more interesting because it has not been secured and because it becomes more important year by year as methods of warfare develop. This kind of security 
will only become possible when there is a single world government with a monopoly of all the major weapons of war. I shall not enlarge upon this subject since it is somewhat removed from my theme. I will only say with all possible emphasis that unless and until mankind have achieved the security of a single government for the world, everything else of value, of no matter what kind, is precarious and may at any moment be destroyed by war. In another book put out by Russell called The Scientific Outlook written as far back as 1931 he has this to say now this this kind of writing for the, the Bertrand Russell Society that did recruit lots of people from the Ivy League universities to work for this agenda all hoping they would be part of a future elite. It was take, this stuff was taken seriously and still is. This is still the same agenda. This is what he said from that book. Scientific societies are as yet in their infancy. It is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. Fitchie laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Uh, our good friend, that liberal darling of 60s counterculture, Bertrand Russell. Oh, he's just such a loving liberal, and he cares so much about people. He just wants to control them down to down to every atom, every molecule in their body. Oh, it's, it's going to be a wonderful scientific society, won't it? Well, again, perfectly logical reasoning. Well, if, if we want to get to that, that type of uh, scientific society, then uh, all we have to do is X, Y, and Z, and we can arrive at, uh, at the conclusion. And that conclusion is a nightmare horror society, and it's a logically, beautifully valid uh, argument, but the premises are fundamentally flawed, and I hope people will understand that without me needing to tease it out too much. But I think it goes to show some of the, the mania that a lot drives so many of the control freaks who are ben behind this ultimate eugenics-driven agenda to try to control people and to try to bring in this total enslavement grid. It shows their ultimate monomania about trying to get these logically valid, carefully crafted, scientific control grids in place for horrific purposes, which should not be. And we can look at that not only from Bertrand Russell, but from H.G. Wells and from all of these other writers who were lusting after this, this Freemasonry of science, as H.G. Wells called it, or whatever whatever other ideas, uh, Aldous Huxley identifying the, uh, the, the ultimate revolution and the fact that people will be controlled through brain chips, etc., etc., back in the 1960s when he was seeing some of the experiments that were going on. Um, just some remarkable things that people have been writing about for decades and decades and decades. And again, it represents that ideal that I think in some ways goes back to that clockwork universe ideal, that if we can just make everyone into these atoms that are going around like billiard balls on a table, and we can just 
get everyone going in the same direction, then we can create this perfectly, totally regimented society. And that should be ringing alarm bells for people who understand Skinner, for example, and behaviorism and all of these ways that people have been trying to manipulate humans into acting like robots in various ways, into getting them all into a societal system that puts them in a state of mind where they basically are robots who will function and act in certain predictable ways. Now, weirdly enough, amazingly enough, horrifically enough, whatever adverb you want to uh, come up with there, it's, uh, it's actually pretty disturbing that we may be living in a generation, or at least in the next couple of generations, where the final answer of whether everything is deterministic in that way may actually be decided one way or another through things like the sentient world simulation and other uh, such uh, ideas for coming up with computer algorithms to predict human uh, behavior to greater and greater degrees of precision, etc. Will the computers eventually be able to decide and describe everything and predict everything that's going to happen? Well, I'll leave that uh, for future generations to decide and hopefully not too soon because I, uh, I think it's a horrific question altogether. And it will take some horrific experimentation to arrive at a definitive answer either way, as uh, DARPA, I'm sure, is all too aware. But uh, but let's let's start to tease this out because uh, just as H.G. Wells and Bertrand Russell and, and Aldous Huxley were the the people of a, a previous generation who were lusting after this idea of total control over society through a scientifically constructed control grid of perfect logical regimentation. I think there is still that tendency exists in people who are actively working today to draw us into the same type of society, maybe using different uh, different funny drawings of, of beautiful plastic cities, but very much working towards the same horrific, ghastly, logically impeccable ends. Over the past century, but accelerating, over the past couple of decades, we've seen the, the emergence of a kind of global data field. The planet itself, natural systems, human systems, uh, physical objects, have always generated an enormous amount of data, but we didn't used to be able to hear it, to see it, to capture it. Now we can, because all of this stuff is now instrumented. And it's all interconnected, so we can have, actually have access to it. So, in effect, the planet has grown a central nervous system. So there's about a billion people using the internet at the moment, and that's you know, set to grow to probably two billion in the next couple of years. And we, we think that's quite a lot, but over the last ten years I've been looking at devices being linked up together using networks, so little sensors on things. You know, these temperature sensors and traffic sensors and flow rate of water and how much electricity or transmitting data. It won't be long, and it may even have happened already, that there's more things on the Internet than there are people on the Internet. That's really what we mean by the Internet of Things. Then you get this sea of data that you just drown in, literally. And there's this triangle that's been quite well documented called the DIKW triangle. That's data, information, knowledge, and the tip at the top is wisdom. The D at the bottom is a sea of data, and when we get this data back home and start doing stuff with it, we apply intelligence to it and transform up that stack. So we go from data into information, information into knowledge, and then glean some wisdom from that. And that's really what it's, or the analytics part of our Smarter Planet story is all about. 
But the, the ideal day, I guess, would be that um, I, I wake up in the morning and my alarm clock went off at the right time because it had looked in my diary to know when my first meeting was and had backtracked which ferry I need to get and therefore which what time I need to get up. The bathroom heater would have been on for half an hour before that time to, uh, to make the bathroom nice and warm. I'd know that the temperature had been freezing overnight and therefore that my ice was going to be need to be scraped off my car so I need to leave the house five minutes earlier. And then I'd be getting a notification, perhaps an audio uh, announcement in my car as I drive to the ferry saying, oh, the ferries are running five minutes late, so you know, no need to rush, just take your time. All that stuff is being handled by autonomic systems of little agents looking out on my behalf for the things it knows I want to do, you know, just making me aware of what's going on so that I can plan my day accordingly. So the system of systems is really what emerges when you start to link these things up. So the fact that you've got isolated systems for example, my house on its own, um, with its energy monitoring and the water monitoring and the detecting if the windows and doors are open, that kind of stuff. It's a system, certainly, but it's not a system of systems. Um, but if you start to think about the, the power grid, first of all, the appliances negotiate with each other. So they say, OK, guys, Andy wants all three of us to operate, but it's going to be bad for the grid if we all go on at the same time. So now suddenly we've got systems talking to each other, so acting smarter because they know about each other, which overall makes the entire system more efficient. Well, if you were anything like me, such talk sends shivers down your spine and sets your alarm bells ringing. But if all of this information today has done anything, I hope it has at the very least shown that logic and truth are not inextricably intertwined, that in fact, the most horrific and, and, and false conclusions can be arrived at through logically impeccable argumentation. So it is important for us to not take that, tr that logic as being the be-all and end-all of what it is that we're striving at in the system that, uh, that we are uh, striving towards. There has to be some understanding that there is something else as well in human nature, and, uh, and there are other things that are important, like determining the true premises through which uh, we can even put things into a logical framework, assuming that logical argumentation can even encapsulate all the vagaries of real-world problems that are, are much, much bigger than, uh, than simple syllogisms, if A then B, A therefore B. So there's a lot to think about, but at any rate, I hope there is uh, some understanding that there are perhaps some hazards if we think that logic is in and of itself necessary and sufficient for arriving at truth certainty. And on that very uncertain note, I'll leave it there for today. I'm your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Oh, playfully what you need.